I will tell you that this week has been difficult. Preparing uh, for this message has been really hard because, and I, I don't know how to say this where you believe I'm genuine about it, but I don't feel worthy to teach what I'm about to teach. And because when I look at the remarkable sacrifice that Christ made, it's just, it's mind-blowing. And I've taught it many times, but it's just like each time I approach it, and even for some reason now, more than ever, it's just like, how do you teach this and really give it the glory it deserves? Because it's an amazing passage of Scripture. Um, I saw Leah a second ago. Leah Nunley, is she here? She, okay, she, she's our scripture reader, but I think she's going to be preoccupied with Oliver. So I'm going to read our scripture this morning. Uh, we're in Mark 15, if you want to join us in your Bible or on your device. Of course, it's up on the screen. Um, it says, and as they compelled a passerby. You know, Leah, there she, here she comes. I'm, going to let you, I'm not going to steal your thunder. I'm going to let you come up here and read for us. Here we go. She's going to use Nathan's mic right here. Right there. There you go. We make it complicated. You have to have a special passcode. Right There you go. Right there. And it'll be on the screen right there. Can you see the, the screen okay? The mic's a little different today. So, Patrick, you might have to scoot over. I don't know. All right. This is Leah Nunley. Leah, tell us, tell everybody how we're connected. Yeah, I knew two older sisters. They went to camp with us, and you were just a baby. So yeah, but we've reconnected, and you've been coming here for a while. We're glad you're here this morning. And your son is Oliver. Great, we're glad to have him here too. All right, there you go. And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Let's move you over here. How's that? Is that better? Okay. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription on the, of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Oh. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which said, And he was numbered with the lawless. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of the Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, with a cried with a loud voice, "Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani," mm -hmm. which means, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, "Behold, he is calling Elijah." 
And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. And Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him, ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Leah. Appreciate it. All right. You will notice that Mark has a pattern there where he says the word end, 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 over and over and over again. And if you remember back in English school, in English, your English teacher in school taught you, it's not really good writing to start your sentence with the word end. But Mark does it repeatedly because he's trying to show you something. He's kind of like an excited toddler who, you know, when, when one of your kids runs up to you and they just came from a party and, and there was a birthday cake and, and we went on the bouncers and, and, and he blew out the candles and, and someone got him a big Nerf gun and, 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 and you know how they get excited and they do this end over and over again? It's kind of that with, like what Mark is doing here. And this happened and this happened and they did this to him and they did this to him and then this happened. And he's starting the, each sentence 15 times just in these few verses if you look at the previous 20 verses, he does it there as well. And he hasn't done this at all through the whole thing of the Gospel of Mark. And all of a sudden here in chapter 15, it's like everything is happening rapid fire. Boom, 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 boom. And, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And what he's trying to show is that all of this just happened in a great fury of the, all the evil things that happened to Jesus were like machine gun rapid fire. But what we want to do this morning is slow down and look at each one of these things that happened. But if you just look at the, this passage, you see the word end there so many times where he starts off a sentence that way. And again, there's, whenever you see patterns in your Bible reading, stop. Stop and ask, what is, what's the point here? Why, the, why is this phrase being used over and over again? And even like the last couple of verses that Leah just read, it seemed really random. And there were women there, and he named a whole bunch of women. It's like, what is that about? Here's what that's about. Mark was written while there was people who saw this were still alive. This whole myth that skeptics say that, oh, the New Testament was written hundreds of years later and revised and all this stuff, and, and Jesus, nobody thought Jesus was God at the time, but then hundreds of years Later, Constantine and the Catholic Church deified Jesus into something it was not. That is so not history. Mark is naming eyewitnesses. He's saying, if you don't believe this story of all these things that happened to Jesus, just go ask these women. Many of them were there, and many of them are still alive today. And so he's naming names, and he's doing that because anybody could say, hey, so Rufus, did, did your dad really carry the cross? Yeah, I was there. You know, hey, Salome, did you? Did you really see Jesus rise from the dead? Yes, I was there. So if, if as many people who are named in the New Testament as eyewitnesses, it would only take one to say, don't quote me, that's not true. 
But none of that happened. There's no record of that. And you see even secular historians recording all these events. So I, we could divide this, chap, this passage up into six simple points here. First of all, we see the help from Simon. The help from Simon. Then we see the cruelty of the soldiers. We see the jeers from the two thieves. We see the mockery of the mob. We see the judgment up from the father. And then we see the confession from the centurion. So let's go through each of these. And first of all, the help from Simon. It says, and they, the, the Roman soldiers, they compelled, which means they forced him to. He didn't volunteer. He was voluntold to help Jesus carry the cross. And he's a passerby. He doesn't even know what all this is about. But he does know why he's in Jerusalem. He has traveled, we don't know exactly how far, whether it's just from the countryside or it's actually from Cyrene, but he's traveled here to, to participate in the Passover. This is a big deal to him. This is like the big annual family reunion. People from all over the world come here for this. They see people they have not seen in a long time. It's a very holy event. Simon is, even though he's of African descent, he is a Jew, which is you will see that Jewish people, Hitler had a hard time defining what a Jew was ethnically because you can't. There's Jews of all different colors. Jews is more about what you believe and being Abraham's seed, which was very diverse. And so Simon is, is, is traveled here from this. Now, Cyrene is on the north coast of Africa. You see it there in the red box. And Jerusalem is 1,132 uh, 1, miles away. That is like going from here to Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. Okay, imagine traveling that far. Now, again, we don't know if he's just from there, but we know at least he came from the countryside. He was not from Jerusalem. He was from the country, but we don't know if he traveled that far and was staying in the country, and now he's coming to town. But either way, he's come from a, a long distance. And in the Passion of the Christ, here's how he's betrayed as an African descent, which would be very accurate. He's just seeing all this brutality happen, but I wonder somewhere in his mind when all this is clicking. I'm here to celebrate the lamb to be slain for the, the sins of, of God's people we call the Passover. But here is this man and people in the crowd are saying that John the Baptist called him the lamb of God. Maybe he's connecting the dots. But either way, he's forced to help Jesus carry his cross. And if you haven't seen The Passion of Christ, I strongly recommend that you watch it. It's extremely uh, accurate. There are some things about it that I do not like, but nothing major. But uh, it will humble you, to say the least. You, you, you need to prayerfully get ready to watch that. But what, what would it be like to be face-to-face -face with the Messiah after he's been beaten for 36 hours and scourged and has his crown of thorns and you are helping the Messiah of the world carry his cross? I really would like to know what Jesus wanted by having this detail in the story. Some people say, hey, you know, here it shows that different ethnic groups that got, were all God's children. Here it shows that um, Jesus has compassion and G how human Jesus is that he could not care. Because Jesus was a buff carpenter who did all his work without power tools. He would have had no trouble carrying this cross normally, but he's exhausted. He's not eaten and probably has, is dehydrated, and he's been... Some people died from the flogging alone, so his strength is really weak. But here, Simon is brought in, but we'll see some more details about him in a moment. But 
it says that he is the father, Mark adds these details, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why is he adding that detail? Because he's saying, hey, this is historical. Because if if, guess, where is Mark when he's writing this? He's in Rome sharing the gospel with Romans. And guess where Rufus goes to church now? Many people believe, and many scholars believe, that he was a part of the church at Rome. He's mentioned there. Romans 16, 13 says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Hey, hey you want to, if you're not sure whether this really, this whole story about Simon the Cyrene happened, ask Rufus, his son, who's now an elder in your church, because history says that Simon got saved, and his two sons, Rufus and Alexander, got saved. And just like Simon was chosen against his will, to carry the cross, he says, hey, Rufus, you were chosen by God to carry your cross. It's beautiful language here, and I think history supports this as well. It even says to greet his mother. So obviously, Simon is off the scene. He's older. Maybe he's died. We don't know. You know, but he's saying what a relationship he has with her. So by carrying the cross of Jesus, Simon became ceremonially unclean and unable to stand in the temple to celebrate the Passover with the family. Because he came in contact with blood and with a criminal, all these things, he's now disqualified from participating in the Passover. This just ruined his whole trip. All the money he had saved up, all the plans he had, he can now not be a part of any of this. But here's the irony of it all, the beautiful irony. But by believing in the cross of Jesus, Simon became spiritually clean and thus able to stand in the true temple to celebrate the true Passover, Jesus in God's family. Do you see that? What, what man intended for evil, God has used for good. This is further confirmation that God uses the bad things that happen in your life to turn it to his glory if you will just have your spiritual eyes open and accept and trust in the Lord's providence in all the things that happen to us. You see, Mark continues here with Simon the Cyrenian that non-Jews, non-ethnically Jews, people who are from all different parts of the world he keeps emphasizing that they're the ones that Jesus came for. You have from the Samaritan woman at the well to the Syrophoenician woman begging for healing for her daughter, and now to Simon the Cyrenian, who's African, and ending with a Roman centurion saying, truly this was the Son of God. Gentiles are highlighted all throughout Mark's gospel, showing that the, that the gospel was not just for the Jews. It was for the Jews first, but also to the Greek or the non, non-Jews. And I believe that Jesus orchestrated this whole thing to where Simon would be there and Simon would help carry the cross so this would be the beginning of the gospel being spread to the world. Jesus, when he would be resurrected, would tell them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And it's starting right here with a guy who's originally from North Africa. And so by doing this, he's setting the wheels in motion for the gospel to spread throughout all the world to all peoples. Christianity is the most ethnically diverse religion on the planet. Most Muslims are Arab. Most Hindus are Indian. Most Buddhists are Oriental or Asian. But Christianity has spread all over the globe. And in fact, it's growing in the places farthest from the Middle East, all over the world, in South America and Asia. Um, there's, There's revival breaking out in the Philippines and in South Korea and all over the world. You see this to where the gospel is meant to be spread to all the world. And Revolution Church must play a big part of that. 
Maybe someone in our congregation will be eventually called to go, but in the meantime, we will continue to support missionaries. And even though we're a small church with a smaller budget, we'll do all that we can. And one of our, our elders' goals is that eventually we'll get to the point where more than 50% of the money collected in this church leaves this church to spread the gospel in different parts of the world. But history tells us that the church became extremely strong in Cyrene because Simon went back there, his sons probably went back there, and you even quote later in the book of Acts about how the church was super strong in that part of the world. In fact, do you remember Philip? He talked to a guy from where? Ethiopia. And the gospel exploded in northern Africa. In fact, in the first century, the gospel and Christianity was more brown than it was light brown. It was, North Africa was a big... In fact, a lot of people will quote uh, St. Augustine. He was black. There, there was, the gospel was very black and brown at the beginning. And so this whole idea, you'll hear people say, oh, why should I listen to some white guy from Israel? Jesus wasn't white, by the way. And, also, and Christianity was not very white at the very beginning. So next we'll see the cruelty from the soldiers. The cruelty of the soldiers. It says, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, or Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And here's what it looks like today. You can travel over there, and I'm sure you can see the skull in there. If not, let me help you with the little red box there. You see, if you were to see this picture up close, you even see what looks like eyeballs in the sockets and the nose. It looks very much like a skull, and thus it was named appropriately. And so this is ironically the place where they take for Jesus to die, a place that is named after death. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, Matthew says he, they offered him wine mixed with gall, and gall and myrrh are two different things. And some skeptics say, oh, see, there's a contradiction. One time it says wine mixed with gall, and other time it says wine mixed with myrrh. It's not a contradiction. It doesn't say mixed with myrrh only or mixed with um, gall only. I believe it was mixed with both. First of all, myrrh is a fra something that offers fragrance that makes the wine taste and smell better. Okay, And Mark is pointing this out. Matthew points out the gall because he's Jewish and he would know this detail. Gall was kind of an anesthetic. It deadened pain. And so the reason Jesus did not take this drink was he's not taking any shortcuts. He was not going to minimize the pain whatsoever. If you baked an apple pie with cinnamon, does that mean it doesn't have any sugar? If someone mentions the sugar in the pie and someone else mentions the cinnamon in the pie, does that mean, oh, which one was it? There's a contradiction. Was it cinnamon or was it sugar? No, it's both. It's just people seeing things from different perspectives might name something different. Matthew's trying to focus on Jesus didn't minimize the pain. Okay, Mark is pointing out that as he was there, he, it smelled. He could smell the myrrh in the wine, so he points out that. There's no, there's no contradiction there. It only takes an open mind to see that. So what did they do? They crucified him. And it's funny, he just says they crucified him. And move on. Well, Mark, again, is speaking to a Roman audience, the people who perfected the, 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 the death penalty of crucifixion. So it would be kind of like to you if I said they put him in the electric chair. That is a hyperlink into your mind of a whole bunch of things. A metal ring, hands strapped, you know, voltage, you know, lots of pain at first and the body shaking, you know, you can think of all those things as soon as I say those one, those, those, what one phrase, electric chair. So when he says they 
crucified him in the Roman mind, like, oh my gosh. They've seen thousands of people crucified. They know that this was the weapon of intimidation that the Roman government did on many roads that met led to many places you would walk down and you would see these people crucified on either side of the road saying, hey, don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with Rome. At one point in time in history, they counted to 30,000 people in the, uh, the, uh, the, the slave revolt that happened years before Jesus. They crucified 30,000 people all over the Roman Empire at the same time to put down the rebellion. Um, oh, man. Okay, I'm going to have to do this next week. Amanda was going to read something for me, but I didn't bring it. I messed up. It's, it is on the printer at home. My bad. Oh. So anyway, they crucified him, and then they, after they've stripped him, they, he has his cloak, his robe, and the different garments, and they're gambling for them. And, and one of the other Gospels mentions the reason that they're gambling for them is because they were originally going to cut him in pieces, but then they saw that his cloak was woven from top to bottom with no seams. Do you own one piece of clothing that has no seams in it? I mean, what an amazing art of, uh, of craftsmanship for that to be woven top to bottom. Not to mention that it was made of excellent material, but the craftsmanship alone made it very valuable. And they're stripping this off Jesus. They're like, hey, I want it. No, I want it. Well, no, you can have his cloak. No, you have to. Well, hey, let's gamble for it. And they cast lots. And here's a picture of what it might have looked like. You know, it's maybe some multi-sided dice. Maybe it was like straws. We don't know. There was all different types of ways that people could play games of chance. Really, the only time in the Bible gambling's mentioned, it's not a positive reference. I'm not going to take that as a proof text, but it's something to think about interestingly. Psalm 22, a thousand years before this happened, David, who's not only a king, he's a prophet, prophesies this through the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, they divide my garments among them for my clothing they cast lots. Never in 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel has it ever been recorded that anybody gambled for David's clothes. So this isn't David making a reference to himself and people saying, well, the point I'm trying to make it fit Jesus. All of Psalm 22, you can read it and none of it applies to David. It's a prophecy of, of the Messiah. And all this, and this is confirmation that, that the Bible is true. And your skeptic friends can attack this, and atheists can attack this all they want, but it, there is no explanation for how, in meticulous detail, over 300 prophecies about Jesus' first coming, how they all become true. And people have even tried to make the, the really lame argument that Jesus orchestrated the whole thing, that he grew up with a messianic complex. Like, I want to be the Messiah, I want to be the Messiah. So I'm going to tell people I'm from Bethlehem. I'm going to make up a story that I was born of a virgin. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to preach all these things. I know my Old Testament, so I'm going to try to fulfill all of them. Right. And from the cross, he's saying, hey, guys, it's time to gamble for my clothes. Go ahead, do that now. Hey, over there, you, can you spit on me? You know, this makes no sense. The chances of, of someone orchestrating all this to become true, they have a better chance of being struck by lightning 10 times mathematically. It's, it's not even possible. But there's no explanation for how all these prophecies came true. They're simply ignored. Um, about two and a half years ago, my brother Jerry passed away. And he was retired Air Force. And I'm sure many of you have been to a military funeral. And there, I... I, I you know, I don't love funerals, but I love the way the military honors its military men. And just the way that they, the solemn ceremony of, whole, of folding the flag. 
And it's customary that it's presented to the nearest of kin. If, it's, if the wife is still alive, it's presented to her. If she's not, it's presented to the mother or someone nearest in the family. And so this armed guard uh, presented my brother's flag to my sister-in-law, Kathy. And that was such a special time for her. She, in fact, I was talking to her yesterday, and she said, Gary, I will never forget that how he just stared straight into my eyes as he's handing this to me. She said, I'll never forget that and how what's a special moment that was for me. And the Jewish custom back then was when someone's robe, their, their valuable garment like Jesus had, was stripped from them and they were dying or have already deceased, something very similar to this would happen and it would be presented to their wife or to their mother. And of course, Jesus' mother is right there at the whole time seeing and observing all this. And maybe in the back of her mind, she's thinking that robe will be given to me and I'll have one thing to remember my son from. But they gamble for it. And they keep it. And all she has now is a memory of her son. At least that's what she thinks. In three days he will rise. And she will see him amongst many other witnesses. And know that when she's, all that she went through as a young teenager, all the disgrace, all the being made fun of for, oh yeah, that's right, virgin birth, right? Yeah, we know how that goes. We know what you and Joseph were doing. And just the, the years and decades of disgrace. And now all the disgrace they're heaping upon her firstborn son. And she's deprived of this. But the resurrection erases all of it. So it was the third hour. So now we're talking, and we're doing this in the time that where they kept that sunrise would be zero you know, 7 a.m. would be the first hour. So now the third hour after sunrise would be 9 a.m. 9 a.m. and Jesus is on the cross. And from 9 to noon, he is suffering. And, and of course, he's suffering beyond that, but let me, we'll talk about it more in a second. They crucified him, and then there was an inscription that Pilate ordered that, that read the king of the Jews. And here's what it might have looked like. It was written in three languages. It was written in Latin, Greek, and in Hebrew so that everybody would know this. And the Jews were furious with this sign. Why? Because Pilate wrote, the king of the Jews. And they said, no, no, no. You need to say he claimed he was the king of Jews. He says, what I have written, I have written. And whether that's Pilate being too lazy to redo it or whatever, we don't know. But in God's sovereignty, the truth was told. That he was the king of the Jews. Not just he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He indeed was the king of the Jews. The third point we see this morning is that there's jeers that come from the two thieves. There was thieves crucified on either side of them. Thieves is, is, is probably putting it lightly. They were insurrectionists who stole, murdered, killed, did everything they could to be part of the rebellion. And as they're on either side, last week we covered that probably Barabbas, that middle cross, as the main player in the rebellion, the leader of the rebellion, he should have been on that middle cross, but Christ took his place. Anyway, it says in the two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. Mark, it's, so, it's interesting that he's only 16 chapters, but he's packed so much detail in there, and he's got so many hyperlinks to other stories. Does this right hand and left hand sound familiar? Do you remember just a few chapters ago, James and John said, hey, Jesus, we want you to give us whatever we ask for. And Jesus says, well, what do you want to ask for? And he says, well, grant us that one of us will be on your right hand and one of us on your left hand. And Jesus is like, and in a couple of weeks, I'm going to have somebody on my right hand and somebody on my left hand. And you don't even have a clue what you're asking for. 
He says that you, you do not even know what you're asking for. And it says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which said he was numbered with the lawless. Now, let me comment on this verse. In the ESV and in several other translations, you don't have a verse 28. And people get it all worked up about that, especially KJV-only people. Say, look, they're taking Bible verses out or whatever. This is not a big issue at all. First of all, let me say this verse is accurate. The scripture was fulfilled, and we'll talk about that scripture. But why is this not in there? Because most likely this was a scribe saying, hey, this, and he's writing in parentheses maybe or something the equivalent of that, saying, hey, this is fulfilling a prophecy. And that scribe's copy got copied and copied and copied as numerous as many other copies that did not have it. And it's not a problem. It's an accurate notation. And you can talk about whether it should or should not be in the scriptures or not. It, it is there and it's true. So it's not a problem. It, if it was a contradiction, we'd have a problem. But again, it's not a, a contradiction. But what scripture is it, is it fulfilling? It's from Isaiah 53, verse 12, 700 years before Christ. It says, because he, the Messiah, poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. So Jesus is crucified in a group of three. He's one of the three, and they're all transgressors. They're all lawbreakers. They're all criminals in the Roman mind. Yet, what he was actually doing was bearing the sins of many. And he's actually making intercession for these guys that he's dying with. And one of them would actually receive him. We'll talk about him in just a second. So here's what the, um, the crucifixion scene may have looked like, as again depicted in the Passion of the Christ. So Matthew says at the beginning, both of them were reviling Jesus. So as people who are just walking by are saying, aha, pfft, this is the guy that said he'd destroy the temple and in three days rebuild it. Of course, what was Jesus talking about? The building blocks or his body? He's talking about his own body, which was a much bigger miracle than rebuilding a temple in three days. He brought himself back to life. So the passers-by are mocking him. The religious people are mocking him. The crowd is mocking him. And even the thieves on either side are mocking him in addition to the Roman soldiers. Everybody's mocking him. Don't let that just slip by. Have you had someone publicly try to humiliate you? Someone call you out, call you a name, maybe curse you in public in front of people? And you're just like, I mean, you've probably thought about that for days. And just like, oh man, I just wish I could get back at him. Imagine the whole crowd doing this. See, Mark just says, oh, they crucified him. But he goes in explicit detail about how much the humiliation and the shame. Luke goes into great detail the physical suffering, but Mark goes into great detail about the, the, the emotional suffering, that he was a man of sorrows and how he bore our grief. That right there was intense, especially when, especially when you've done nothing wrong. It's one thing for someone to get back at you, and maybe you did have a little fault in it, but when Jesus has zero fault in any of this, it's that much more painful, especially when he love these people. He came to die for these people. So both thieves are mocking him. Both thieves are saying, hey, if you're the Messiah, get yourself down and get us down too. But then when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, and I think he's specifically referring to the Roman soldiers, but it could be to broader category than that. One of the thieves is like, wait a minute, something's going on here. He's forgiving people? He, he says to John, behold your mother, 
Mom, behold your son. You guys take care of each other. He's, he's concerned about everybody else but himself. I've never seen such unselfishness. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, he truly is the Messiah. Maybe he really is the king of the Jews. And this thief looks at Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus has the beautiful words of saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. The guy doesn't say, get me down off the cross. He knows. And he even says to the other thief, hey, hey, you be quiet. We deserve what we're getting. This man has done nothing. You see, he, he embraces his sin. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I deserve to die. In fact, don't even get me down. Just after we're dead, I'm dead and gone, would you remember me when you go into the kingdom? And Jesus, because he's now repented of his sins, he's embraced that he really is a sinner, that he's not being crucified or, or, un, or unjustly. In fact, he deserves a whole lot more than that. He deserves to wake up in hell. But he says, Lord, I want to wake up with you in the kingdom. And Jesus says, I'll answer that prayer. You will be with me today in paradise. Next, we see the mockery from the mob. The mockery from the mob. It says, and those who passed by, Deuteronomy, wagging their heads and said, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. It's because Jesus didn't save himself. He could save you. Jesus had a choice, save himself or save the world. I'm thankful that he chose to save the world and not save himself. That love equals sacrifice. And it says, so also the chief priests. You see, earlier the chief priests are stirring up the crowd. Now the crowd is stirring up the chief priests. They're being the typical politicians. They're just following the whims of the crowd. They're not being leaders in any sense of what is right and what is wrong and the distinction between the two. And it says the chief priests describes mocked him one to another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. That's not true. The first half is true. He did save others, and he's actually in the process of saving the world and all who would believe. But that statement, he cannot save others, not true. Jesus said, I could, I could call down legions of angels right now and just destroy the whole world if I wanted to, but I will choose not to. You see, there's a, a, a doctrine in the Bible called penal substitutionary atonement. The word penal referring to penalty. Substitutionary means someone taking your penalty. And the result of someone taking your penalty is that you and God, who was once your enemy, are now at one. It's the at-one-ment. This word was created just for that. They didn't know how to describe. What do you call when God and man are now made at one? Well, let's just call it at-one-ment or atonement as we pronounce it. But this theology is under attack today. People are saying, well, Jesus didn't really die for your sins and and. In fact, some people call this the great cosmic child abuse. How could God the Father send his own son to die and put them all through that? They don't understand what the Bible clearly teaches. And John Stott says it this way, and this, he's a great Anglican preacher, and this is, if you don't get anything else out today, please absorb this quote. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's powerful. The essence of sin is man, like Adam and Eve. What was the lie? You will be like gods. And that's what we all do. We all want to be the god of our own life. And that's the essence of sin. It's every time you make a decision as if you're God and he's not. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself 
for yourself. He goes on to say that man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. But God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Jesus didn't deserve to be on the cross. Gary did. And Gary doesn't deserve to be on the throne. God does. And those two should not be confused. So let me ask you a question. If you impersonate another person, that's commonly called today identity theft. And depending on what you do with that information, it could be a crime, it could be prosecuted. Let's take it a step higher. Let's say you impersonate a police officer and you'll be, you'll be fined $1,000 and probably given probation for impersonating a police officer, depending on what you, if that's all you did, if you didn't do anything else with it. If, let's say you impersonate a federal agent, which is a felony, you'll be sentenced to three years in prison. So there's a principle here. The higher the authority of impersonating, the more severe the punishment. So what do you suppose is the punishment for impersonating God? Death. When you say, I am my own person. I will live my life. I will do what I choose to do. I will identify as whatever I want to identify. I will choose who I love. I will do whatever my career path. And you make all the choices for yourself. You're impersonating God. And lost people aren't the only ones doing it. We, because of our sinful flesh, and sometimes we don't win the battle between spirit and flesh, we impersonate God often. And we need to confess it and forsake it as sin. Because your choices are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Jesus Christ owns you. If you've if named the name of Christ, you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior. His blood purchased all your decisions. Your career path. Your marital status. Your sexual choices. Your financial choices. Any choice you want to name should be brought under the umbrella of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, I, God understands if I do this. Does he? Are you condoning your sin? God wants something better for you. And here's the great thing. God is not some evil overlord forcing you to do things that, are you, that will ruin your life. God is a good father. And he gives his best to those who leave the choices up to him. So our prayer should be constantly what Jesus just prayed the week prior. Not my will, but yours be done. Let's not be guilty of impersonating God. It goes on to say in verse 32, it says, Let the Christ, and this is, I put the quotes there because they're mocking him. Oh, you so-called Messiah, the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Now they're putting, they're throwing down the gauntlet there. They're saying, hey, you just show us, we'll believe. Not true. In fact, even those who were crucified with him with the thieves on the other side, they're reviling him. The thing is, people say all the time, oh, if God would just show me something, I would believe in him, as if God has not shown enough. God shows the miracle of his word, the prophecies fulfilled. You see it every day in the transformation of lives and people, answered prayers, miracles. God proves himself over and over again. He just doesn't do it in the way you think you want it. But let me tell you, even when you get what you want... Will you believe? Because these same people who said, if we, we will see and believe, saw a greater miracle than coming down from a cross. They saw a man coming out of a tomb. They saw a man resurrected from the dead. And guess what? Most of them still did not believe. 
there's um, a guy I follow on, on YouTube, and he, he interviews people all the time and has discussions with atheists. And he says, if you could be, be given enough evidence to prove that Christianity was true, would you become one? And most of the people say no. Because it's not about evidence, even though there's tons of evidence on our side. It's not about philosophy or reasoning. And if we just think about this long enough, oh yeah, people will come to the conclusion. It's about giving up one thing, control. We want what we want. We're like the toddler who won't let go of the toy. We're like the monkey with the ball in the bottle, and we won't let go. We won't let go. We won't let go because we are so, so stubborn. We live in a day when mocking Jesus is not only acceptable, but now it's encouraged. You're seeing that um, from Billie Eilish to Madonna to Kendrick to all these people wearing crosses, wearing crowns, mocking Jesus left and right, and it's just off the charts irreverent and disrespectful. There was one comedian, you can YouTube this, like search it, She's a female comedian, and she was mocking Jesus, and she fell over on the stage and cracked her skull. She was interviewed about it. Do you think that Jesus is trying to get your attention? She's like, oh, no, no, and she just continued to cuss and ridicule Jesus. I don't think that was a coincidence. But you, it, it, it's interesting. You don't see any celebrities, rappers, or comedians mocking Buddha, and they better not mock Muhammad because then, oh, my gosh, can't be Islamophobic. And, you, you know, they just, you saw that the guy um, who wrote the book, The Satanic Verses, um, Salman Rushdie, just got stabbed. Pretty hush-hush in the news, you know, because he was, the, the Muslims were attacking him for that. You just don't see this. Why is so much of the atheist and the unbelievers and the anger all directed to, in one direction? Jesus. It's because he's the truth. And they can't stand it. They're not attacking just deities in general. Nobody takes Buddha's name in vain. <laughs> Have you heard that lately? No. You know, nobody's naming other gods. It's because they know deep down inside the truth. And you can talk about God all day long. You start talking about Jesus, people get uncomfortable. But that's the day we live in. So how should we respond to that? And I wrestle with that. In fact, I was having a discussion after church with Ashley about how I get really passionate about these things, and sometimes it can be interpreted as anger towards the loss, and I don't want, that's what I don't want. Although there's anger towards the attack on my Savior. I mean, imagine someone said all kinds of vicious lies about your mother, just defaming her, making her look like a harlot, all kinds of disgusting things about your mom. I think you'd get pretty heated, okay? Because why? You love your mom. Well, we love Jesus. And when you mock him, it does bother us. It does bring up anger, and it should. But I try really hard also to ask God for compassion because I realize that they're lost just like I was. And I could be very well doing the same thing if it wasn't for the grace of God. We should respond in love and compassion, just like Jesus. Hey, if it bothers us, I'm sure it bothered Jesus, but how did Jesus respond? He responded in love. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So then we see the judgment from the Father. And this isn't named specifically in this passage, but it's, you can't miss it if you're reading the passage. And when the sixth hour, so now 
Jesus on the cross from 9 to noon. But now at noon, high noon, sun at its highest point, darkness came over the whole land. I don't know if this was a global darkness. It doesn't say the whole earth. It says the whole land. But it says it happened till the ninth hour. So for three hours, when the sun should have been at its apex and everything was brightest, it is darkest. In fact, here's a picture from the Passion. But I believe it was even much darker than this. I, be, I believe if it weren't for torches, nobody probably would have seen anything. I believe it, that's my personal opinion. But God performs a miracle from heaven. He's like, let me just show you why this is all happening. Because men love darkness rather than light. You want darkness? Let the sun be covered as the Son of God is being crucified. And he brings darkness as, as a metaphor of all that's happening around here. And says at the ninth hour, in this darkness, Jesus cries, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani. You did a good job with that, by the way, Leah. You pronounced it better than I just did. See, Jesus says this in Aramaic. Aramaic is a rough version of Hebrew. It's kind of like Tex-Mex, okay? It's not exactly Spanish. You know, it's kind of a mixed version. Aramaic is that way with Hebrew. It's kind of a, uh, a village version of Hebrew. And what he's saying here is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of his disciples had fled and forsaken him. The, the, the 120 that had been following him have gone. The crowd that was just saying, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, all these things, and that everybody has forsaken him. But Jesus doesn't really seem concerned with that. The one he's most concerned with is his father. Why has his father forsaken him? Something that I've learned in the past year, and I don't know exactly where to go with all this information, is we, we focus salvation on the suffering of, of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But something I've been thinking about and meditating on in the last year is, do we not believe that the whole Trinity suffered? Do you not think the Father is suffering seeing His Son? How many parents in the room have seen a child undergo sickness or a surgery or something and wish that you could somehow take place with them, trade places with them? And it almost, and just like we tell them when we're disciplined, this is going to hurt you more than it, it hurt me, it's going to hurt more than it hurt you. Do you not think the heart of the Father was in anguish right now? And the Bible says the Holy Spirit grieves. Do you not think the Holy Spirit of God is grieving right now as the Son of God is being humiliated and tortured? And, and then you, you see all this going on right here and you just think, Wow, God loves me that much that he orchestrated all of history around this event to save my soul. And Jesus is saying this, my God, my God. Now, all of Jesus' life, he referred to the Father as the Father, Abba, Father. He never once in his life called him God until this moment. And, and I believe that what is happening here is Jesus, yes, he's 100% God, but this is the, this is the man taking on sins of the world, and so now the human Jesus who has taken on the sin of the world is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, he's quoting again from Psalm 22, 1,000 years, again, word for word what Jesus would say on the cross, but Jesus answers this question. A lot of people have a hard time with this question, but if you understand, this is the forsaken sinful man now 
asking this question, but he even has enough wherewithal from the memory of Scripture to answer his own question. He says, why are you you're so far from saving me? In the words of my, my groaning, oh my God, I cry in a day, but you don't answer. And by night, I, but I find no rest. Yet, here I do know the answer. It's because you are holy. You are a God who cannot look upon sin. And so that's why you've turned your back on me. So that you, you turn your back on me so that you can embrace the world. You reject the, me so you can accept the world. You put sin on me so that you can put your righteousness on the world. The great exchange of the universe happening right here. And he says, even in, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. He turns around and the rest of the psalm, he praises God. We've all done that. We, we get frustrated and say, why did you do that? Well, I know why you do that, but I'm just having a hard time dealing with this. And that's basically the essence of what Jesus is going through right at this point in time. see here. So it says, then someone ran and filled a sponge. Now, don't confuse the sponge with the cup. Okay? They offered him a cup of wine mixed with gall and, and myrrh, but here's a time where they offer him a sponge. And some people say, oh, it's a contradiction. One time it's a sponge, one time it's a cup. No, it's not. They both happened. I don't understand why people automatically think everything is a contradiction because they name multiple facts. They didn't just lift up one thing to Jesus. There was, this went on for hours and hours. So this sponge has sour wine. They put it on a, a reed so they extend it up and they gave it to him to drink. And then they said, wait a minute, don't, don't, don't give it to him yet. Because they didn't understand. Some of the people in the crowd didn't understand Aramaic and they're like, Eloi, Eloi, doesn't that sound like Elijah? Eli, Eli, maybe he's crying out to Elijah. Let's wait and see if Elijah will come take him down. And again, I don't think that they fully understood what was the language going on here because Jesus is speaking his own dialect. But this is what that may have looked like as they offer him this sponge with vinegar, and let's see here. So, then it says Jesus uttered a loud cry. This would have been like a scream as Jesus is taking on the sin of the world and he's feeling the full weight of the wrath of God. And then after that, he breathed his last. You see, Jesus was the second Adam. God created Adam out of the dust of the earth and he breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And here Jesus exhales the breath of life and becomes the one who died for the sins of the world. He is the second Adam. And it says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain in the temple was basically blocking access to God. The holy presence of God was on the other side of the curtain. Nobody could go in there except for one person, one time, once a year. And even that person had to go, the high priest had to go through all kinds of rituals to make sure he was right with God before he even dare enter into the presence of God. And if he entered in with unconfessed sin or did anything, cut any corners, he would be struck dead. That's why many times they tied a rope around his ankle so they could pull him back out. That's why there were bells of pomegranates around the bottom of his robe because as long as you could hear the bells jingling, you knew everything was okay. And if you heard a thud and the bell stopped jingling, you know, uh-oh, priest is dead. You know, and we don't know if that's ever happened in history, but that was the whole, this was the forbidden zone. And here Jesus tears that wall, a partition between God and man down so that man could enter into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. The veil was torn because Jesus' body was torn. 
the veil, the direction of the tear is important. It wasn't torn from the bottom up, which would have been a man doing that. And man cannot do his own deeds to enter into the presence of God. God must tear the barrier down. And so it was torn from the top to the bottom. And here's what the, the, the veil may have looked like. And here's what it may have looked like being torn, as there were probably priests ministering in the temple. And probably I witnessed this, because who else would have given this report, but except for those who witnessed it and gave testimony to Mark. So Jesus, what well, this is a beautiful picture of how Jesus was denied access to the Father and his body was torn so that the veil of the temple would be torn, giving us access to the Father. Do you see the beautiful poetry in all of this as Mark squeezes all this detail into that? You see Jesus Christ crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His, his prayers are not answered so that your prayers could be answered and his body torn so that you could enter in. So we saw the help from Simon. We saw the cruelty of the soldiers, the jeers from the two thieves, the mockery from the mob, and then we, follow, we saw the judgment from the Father. Now the last point here. Let's look at the confession from the centurion. The confession of the centurion. And when the centurion, it didn't say a centurion, this is a centurion. Now century indicates what number? 100. This is a man who has 100 soldiers over him. But he's the centurion, which means he's probably the captain of the captains. Okay? But either way, he's a man of rank. He's the one in charge of the dispatch that is carrying out the crucifixion. Okay? He's the one giving orders, hey, you do the nails, you do this, you do that. And he's the one giving this. He's watching this event that has been ordained before the foundations of the world. And to him, it's just another crucifixion until Jesus. Jesus changes everything. And he stood facing him. He's face to face with Jesus, which is what every lost person needs to do. You need to come face to face with Jesus. You can't skirt the issue. You can sit there and argue all kinds of things, but you need to come face to face with Jesus and accept or deny him. And when he saw that in this way, he breathed his last. It wasn't just that he died. Because Jesus said, no man takes my life from me, I freely it down. In fact, Pontius Pilate was surprised that Jesus was dead so soon. Because sometimes people could hang on the cross for days, and their plan was to break his legs so that Jesus would suffocate, because they would push up and down on the nail through their legs, and the little pedestal they gave them often, so they could and take deep breaths. So if they broke their legs, they could no longer take deep breaths and they would suffocate because they had to get him down before the Passover, before sunset. Ironically, the Passover lamb dying here. And yet Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he exhales. I don't know if you've ever been in the room with someone who passes away and there's that, there's a name for it, I don't know, but it's an exhale of death. And it's like one of the deepest exhales you'll ever hear because they completely empty their lungs. And Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it happens. It's like Jesus didn't die of a heart attack. He didn't bleed to death. He didn't die of anything else. He gave up his life. And when the centurion saw that in this way, wow, I've never seen anybody die like this before. This truly was the Son of God. A man with no Old Testament background, Probably maybe he never saw a miracle of Jesus. Saul had no, no, his religion was the gods of Rome. 
He was a pagan. And yet he says, truly this was the Son of God, which is also very politically controversial because who else claimed to be the Son of God? Caesar. He just denounced the chief of, of the armed services right here and said, truly this, not Caesar, truly this is the Son of God. He came face to face with Jesus. He saw the way that he died. I believe he truly realized he not only died, he died for me. And when he said, Father, forgive them, he's talking about me. This truly was the Son of God. Have you come face to face with Jesus? I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking you go to church. Obviously, you do your here. I'm not asking, have you been baptized? I'm asking, have you come face to face with Jesus and saw the way that he died for you and acknowledge that truly this was the Son of God? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This soldier, and maybe others believed, others did not. But they were all face to face with Jesus. Will you make the choice to believe and have eternal life and give your life to Christ? Or will you choose to reject like many did? Maybe right now you can make that decision to trust Christ as the sacrifice for your sins, all your sins, past, present, and future. And that you give your life to him because he gave his life for you. Father, thank you so much for this passage of scripture. So much packed into so few verses. And Lord, we could preach on this for for months and years and still not plumb the depths of the truth you have for us here. But Father, help us just to behold your glory in this and to realize that what an amazing, immense price was paid to redeem us. Help us not to take that lightly. Help us to live each day for you because you are worthy of moment-by-moment obedience. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you made a decision to trust Christ, I would love to hear from you. Whether you're in-house this morning or watching online, um, this is an important decision. If you've never followed the Lord in baptism and made your decision public, I would ask you to pray about that. And let me ask you another question. Who do you know that would benefit from hearing this message like this today? Can you think of someone you wish was sitting right next to you to hear this? Why not pray about uh, inviting them uh, this week and ask them to join you next Sunday? All right, Amanda, would you like to help me with question and answer time? You can text your question into that number right there. Um, let me have you use, you can take the step and use this one right here. This one right here, guys. Okay. All right. Um, and I guess you need my phone, don't you? Okay. Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, that sounds like it's on. Okay. All right, I'll let you pick sure. here. Okay. First question. This looks like, okay. I've heard an argument pointing to the Crusades as an example of Christianity being a source of genocide. What was the reason behind the Crusades and how were they connected to anything in the Bible? Okay, so the Crusades uh, obviously happened much after the Bible, but the Holy Land uh, was kind of taken over by the Catholic Church. And I don't want to throw the Catholic Church totally under the bus. They weren't totally wrong in this situation. 
but the Muslims came in and took over parts of the Holy Land. Well, when they when the churches of Europe heard about it, like, hey, we can't let them have the Holy Land. Let's go back and, and take it back, especially the way they're treating and torturing and killing some Christians. So it was a response to the war on Christians. So the Crusades were, hey, let's all go down and fight to win back the Holy Land and deliver some of these Christians who have been taken captive and have been killed and, and uh, vindicate them. So at, at first it was good, but... It went back and forth, so there were several crusades because the Muslims would fight back. And sometimes on the way to the crusades, the Catholic Church and their soldiers would do wrong and horrific things, and they would kill innocent Muslims as well as anybody who was not Catholic. And so you got this whole big mess. You know? And some people say the Catholics were all wrong and the Muslims were right. And some people say the Muslims were wrong and the Catholics were right. But it was, it was enough evil going on, on both sides. But it has nothing to do with true Christianity. It doesn't. Um, Jesus would not have had us to go take back a holy land. We don't really care about... Where, that's why we to this day don't know exactly where Jesus was buried. There's like three different tombs. They'll say, well, we think it's this one. We think it's that one. Pastor Stan, you've been there to the holy land, right? There's more than one tomb that claims to be Christ. It's because nobody went there and worshipped. Oh, this is where our Savior died. We didn't, we, he's alive. Why would we care about where... He, you know, it's just like some of you go visit your mom or your dad's you know, cemetery plot. Because they're there. Well, what if your mom or dad didn't have a, a cemetery plot? You would have no place to go visit. That's why the location was not a big deal to the first century Christianity. It came a big deal in the third century when Constantine and the Catholic Church took over a lot of things. So it is, it's not really a smack against Christian, true Christianity. It would be like saying, well, I know of a doctor that did all kinds of horrible things. Okay, now all doctors are evil. No, it doesn't make any sense. You don't throw out the, the baby with the bathwater. I've heard that Golgotha, place of the skull, could be the place where David put Goliath's head. Thoughts? Yes, yes. In fact, I think the last time I taught on this passage, I taught exactly that, that this is the same place that David cut off the head of Goliath and where, where he took it to bury it. He took it to bury it there, I think is the way it went down. So I think this is perfect because something we don't know about Goliath is the words that described his um, armor describes the skin of a snake. And so he looked like a big armored snake up there, and David cut off the head of the snake. It was a foretaste or foreshadowing of Christ crushing the head of the serpent, which is what Genesis 3.16 predicted. So yeah, great observation. Okay, long question here. Using Paul Harvey's If I Were the Devil monologue. That's actually a oh, no, don't quote from a pastor oh, friend of mine. Sorry. He okay. sends me a text every Sunday. <laughs> okay. That's okay. Question, here we go. If someone with mental health and PTSD issues needs help in therapy, and someone else believes they are one of a handful of people that could help them, does that person have any spiritual, moral, or ethical obligations to render aid to the person needing mental help? I'm going to reread it? Um, no. Okay. I <laughs> um, just want to think before I answer it. Um, I would think they at least should look into the possibility of helping them. I don't know that. But if there, it seems like it's a match. I mean, if you're one of the few people that can do this and they've come across, if God's brought them across your, your path, there's no reason not to help. And that's kind of like what James says, that if you know to do good and don't do it, to you it's sin. So I would pursue it unless there's some reason that something stops it or someone else comes along to say, you, you could help. 
Nathan, have a question? Or? No, no. Oh. I, I had, this is going to be the last question unless someone okay. texts one in. I'm uh, just giving a warning. Um, so I was reading this Hasidic Jewish woman was saying, um, well, someone asked her, someone actually told her, you need Jesus. And her reply was, why would I need Jesus when I can go directly to God? She's like, it's like going to the store manager when I could go to the owner. Why, why do I need Jesus? She referred to him that way. And I was like, I have never thought of Jesus that way. In my mind, I'm like, well, Jesus is God. I know that our mind can't wrap around that, but I, I wanted to respond so badly, but I'm like, I can't, I don't know how to tell you, like Jesus is God. But yeah, but she was, when she, I've never thought of Jesus being the store manager. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that, there's a few things wrong with that thought process. But the first thing I think that, impressed, that came to mind was, you know that saying going on, y'all need Jesus, y'all need Jesus? Mm-hmm. I want to make a t-shirt that has y'all need Jesus and cross out the y'all and say we all need Jesus because we, we need to include ourselves in that statement. It almost sounds condescending. Well, I don't, but y'all need Jesus. Or like, I've already got him, y'all need him. It sounds condescending. Um, so then you're exactly right. See, the problem is she sees Jesus as a like, representative of God and not God. So, um, but we are created in God's image, right? God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are body, soul, and spirit. And so it would be like saying, you know, uh, a man saying to his wife, well, I love you, but I don't love your body. I don't, love you. I don't, want, I don't need your body. It's just like, that's, that's part of who I am. You can't reject part of me and, and accept another part of me. So the, the problem is her theology. She sees Jesus as less than God and not as God. But God became human flesh, 1 Timothy 3.15, and dwelt among us. So any other, and that's all the questions? No other questions. All right, let's stand and sing a song on the way out.